Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Good evening, everybody. Well, the Fed did it again. They raised interest rates another quarter of a point. So the Fed funds target range now is five to five and a quarter. Now, remember, initially, I thought that they might not have hiked. This was a while ago. Based on the beginning of the financial crisis, I thought that might have been a catalyst for the Fed to pause. But then the Fed made it pretty clear that it wasn't going to be distracted from its mission. It never really acknowledged that this was a financial crisis, kind of like a mere bump in the road, nothing to really worry about. And so the Fed made it clear and the markets anticipated that the Fed would, in fact, hike by 25 basis points. And that is exactly what they did. That's what I've been expecting now for the last couple of months, because I know from past experience that the Fed always does whatever the markets expect it to do. It's kind of afraid to do anything different than what the markets expect. So it waits to figure out what the markets want. And then that is exactly what it delivers. Now, I think, though, that more people were hopeful that the Fed would have stronger language that this was the last hike, that this was it, that they, you know, they had reached the peak of the rate hike cycle. And I don't think the markets got that today from Powell. And that's why I think the market sold off. It didn't sell off a lot, although we'll see how much more we get tomorrow. But the Dow finished down about 275. That was the low of the day. Although initially, when we got the news, there was a small relief rally because the markets thought maybe the Fed was going to give them that. Of course, we hadn't had the, the press conference yet because in addition to the hike, there was a small tweak to the language of the official statement. And basically, the Fed wrote that instead of it anticipating more hikes, it changed that to kind of read that it may be appropriate for there to be more hikes, but then it may not be. It's kind of depending on the data. So before they were anticipating more hikes. And now they're not really sure what's going to happen. It just depends on what's appropriate. So that gave the markets some hope that maybe we would get something even more dovish from Powell at the uh, press conference that came a half hour later. And that's what I'm going to spend most of the podcast on. In fact, the rest of the podcast really talking about what Powell said during this press conference, beginning with his opening remarks. And he started by addressing, I guess, what would be the elephant in the room, although there's so many elephants in this room, it's hard to you know, focus in on any one. Uh, I've mean, probably never seen a room with more elephants than, than it's, you know, it's like a circus at this point. But what, what he started off saying was that the situation in banks has improved markedly recently like you know yes there was a problem there were some banks that were failing but don't worry right the situation has greatly or marketably improved recently and that the u.s banking system is sound and resilient right sound and resilient this is what pal said not that many hours ago and 
probably a couple of hours after that statement. Maybe not even that many. I'm not really sure how much time transpired between that confident statement and the next shoes that dropped. And that is another major bank, which you know is already having some problems if you look at the stock price. But PacWest Pac Bank Corp, after the stock market closed, and by the way, the regional banking index hit a new 52-week low today before this news. But the news came out that PacWest Bank Corp is out of money, right? They need to raise capital. They need to tap the markets. They need to sell stock and raise capital to shore up the bank because they've lost so much money. Now, the stock is trading 60% down in after-hours trading. It had already been clobbered before it lost another 60% of its value on the way to probably losing 100% of its value because this is exactly how Silicon Valley banks started, right? First, it was like, oh, we need to raise some money. And the next thing they know, uh, they're in receivership and, and they're gone bankrupt. Well, it's probably going to happen again uh, to PacWest. And in fact, another bank, um, Western Alliance Bank, which has also been having problems, that bank is down 30% in after hours on the news uh, from PacWest Bancorp. So they're probably going under too. I mean, I was even speculating about that prior to this, just looking at their stock price, the markets were sniffing this out. And as the stock really starts to fall, depositors get worried, right? The big depositors who have more than $250,000 in the bank, they watch the news. A lot of these guys are probably in the stock market. They see the shares of the bank where they've got a lot of money, they see the price crashing, what do they want to do? They want to get their money out. Even if they weren't pulling their money out before the stock started to crash, once it starts crashing, you want your money. I mean, why not? Why leave it there? Why take a chance? None of these large deposits are 100% guaranteed, right? Because the deposit insurance is to 250. And the rest of it is, you know, a crapshoot. It depends on you know, what they decide. Well, why take the risk? It's not expensive or difficult to just transfer your money from one of these banks where the stock is crashing to another bank where the stock is stable or one of the bigger, you know, too big to fail banks where you pretty much know that no matter what happens, you know, the bank's not going to be allowed to fail. So why not just transfer your, your money? I mean, better safe than sorry. I mean, there's, there's no upside to staying in a bank, you know, once the shares start to crash. And so that's why once this snowball starts rolling down the hill, you don't stop until you get, you know, a giant boulder and the bank fails. So these banks are probably going to fail because if they weren't going to fail before, don't you think come tomorrow morning, the rest of the people who have their money in these banks are going to go to yank it out? Of course they are. Why wouldn't they? And then what's going to happen is that as more banks fail, then more people get worried that their bank is next. And so what do you do if you're worried that your bank might be next? You get your money, right? I said this from the beginning, in order to stop this, they are gonna have to come out and explicitly guarantee all of these bank deposits. Now, of course, that is the wrong thing to do. It's two wrongs make a right. What is causing the problem is the government guarantee. None of these guarantees should exist. We shouldn't have the FDIC. Everybody is talking about now, how can we reform the FDIC to better make sure that the banks are uh, stable? And Powell even said he wants the banking system to be more stable, even more resilient. Well, the only way to do that is to get rid of the FDIC. As long as the government is in there guaranteeing deposits, you guarantee there will never be stability. There will never be any resilience. The only way to make the banking system stable and resilient is to have capitalism, to have competition, to let the markets rein in excess risk-taking. Governments are encouraging and subsidizing excess risk-taking. That's why we have it. That's why the banking system is so unstable, but the Federal Reserve and the government don't understand the root cause of the problem and their proposed solutions 
will simply take a problem that they don't understand and make it worse. But regardless of what they end up doing, no matter how many banks fail before they decide to backstop the rest, you don't want to leave your money in the bank. I've been saying this not only since this financial crisis started, which of course nobody is calling it a financial crisis. How many banks have to fail before it's officially a financial crisis? I don't know. Maybe we'll find out because a lot more are going to fail. But as I've been saying, you want to take your money out of these banks. It doesn't matter whether it fails or not because the money's going to fail, even if your bank doesn't, because they're going to have to print so much money. They're going to have to create so much inflation to backstop all these banks and bail them all out because pretty much they'd all fail based on the you know, the foundation that they're on that the Fed created that's now crumbling. So you got to get your money out of these banks because inflation is going to destroy its value. Even if you don't lose your money, you will lose the value of your money. The markets are starting to figure this out again. You know, they haven't figured it out. So it's they're starting. Gold prices are up another $11 as I speak. They're at 2051. I saw it higher. We were closer to 2060, so almost a new record high in the price of gold. Gold was up about 16 or $18 during the, the session today. And then it jumped up more after hours on these collapsing uh, regional banks. But remember, my last podcast that I did on Sunday night, right? Gold was at 1980. And I was thinking, why isn't it going up? Because there was already another bank, First Republic, that failed on Friday and they were looking for a buyer. Uh, JP Morgan Chase, uh, you know, one of the banks that's too big to fail, just got even bigger by buying uh, First Republic. But I said on that Sunday night podcast, didn't make any sense that gold was down. That was bullish for gold. And I said, try to buy it, you know, may, you know, tomorrow. And of course, it actually recovered those losses by the open on, on uh, Monday, but then sold off almost back to that level before rallying. But here we are now just a couple of days later or three days later, and we are $70 higher than that. And as I've been saying, these dips below 2000 on gold are buying opportunities. This is the floor. This is not actually just a floor. This is a launch pad. And we're getting ready for a moonshot in the price of gold, in case you haven't figured that out yet. But you need to get out of paper and into real things like gold and silver. And what's happening with the banks is just more proof that that's what you want to do. But I just, you know, ultimate irony. I don't know if anybody in the mainstream media is going to point out how ironic it is that Powell was just talking about how, you know, everything is improved. The worst is over, you know, and, you know, and, and now, you know, more, more banks failing again. There's every time they say it's over, there's another shoe that drops. And every time they say, is this the last shoe? No. And I've been saying again, since the very beginning, that this is a centipede, right? I think what, that's a hundred shoes and maybe one of them, uh, five, six of them have dropped. We got a lot of shoes that are going to drop. The only thing that's going to stop it is going to be when the government officially backstops everything. But that is going to accelerate the inflation problem because of the amount of inflation that has to be created to make good on that guarantee. Because the FDIC has no money. And so where is the money going to come from to insure all these deposits that are right now not insured? It's going to come from inflation. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. All right, before I forget, I want to remind uh, the premium members that, again, I'm going to do another Q&A immediately following this evening's live podcast. Uh, if you're not currently a member and you want to participate in tonight's Q&A, you have a question, you'd like it answered, 
It's shiftradio.com slash premium in order to sign up. So first of all, I want to go over some of the prepared remarks that Powell delivered. And again, these remarks are not part of the official statement that, that came out immediately uh, at 2 o'clock Eastern time when they announced the quarter point rate hike. And they have this official you know, statement that comes out with the, the hike. And I already mentioned how the language was tweaked uh, in that. But then he has his uh, press conference. And before he takes questions, he reads some more prepared remarks. And so these are the remarks that I want to start with. So first of all, one of the things he said with respect to the banking crisis is that the Fed is going to work to try to prevent stuff like this from happening in the future, right? So, hey, all this stuff is happening, and now the Fed is going to try to make sure it doesn't happen again. Well, the Fed is the reason it's happening now. And in fact, when it happened in 2008, they told us that they would make sure it would never happen again. In fact, it was Janet Yellen who said we never have another financial crisis in her lifetime. And when she said that, I thought, well, maybe if she gets hit by a bus or something, that might be a true statement. But if she had a normal lifetime, I said, of course, she's going to see another one. And in fact, there's another one on her watch. She is the secretary of the Treasury, and we are experiencing a financial crisis. Now, maybe she doesn't want to have to acknowledge that. Maybe that's one of the reasons that nobody wants to say it's another financial crisis, because it would make Yellen look even more foolish for having said that we would never have another one. But one of the reasons that they all told us we'd never have another crisis was because they claimed they fixed it in 2009, right? Now, of course, they caused the problem in 2008 that they claimed credit for fixing in 2009, right? They light the fire, and then they say, oh, you see, we put it out. But they didn't put it out, right? They just poured gasoline on it, and maybe it looked like it went out, and then it blew up even bigger. And now they're making the same promise again. Oh, okay, the government's going to fix this. We're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. They still don't get it that the reason it did happen again was because of the government, because the underlying Fed policy and government guarantees that created the crisis the first time never went away because the Fed and the government misunderstood why we had the crisis in 2008. And so everything they did to supposedly prevent another one just guaranteed that another one would happen. And that's what I said from the beginning. And, you know, of course, I got that right. Anyway, so then Powell again said that they want to make or the Fed wants to make sure that the strong, resilient banking system, that's how he described it, but he wants to make sure that it's even stronger and more resilient. Well, again, I already said this. If the Fed wants the banks to be stronger and more resilient, the government's got to get out. The Fed's got to get out. we got to have normal interest rates. We can't have government guarantees. Look, why does everybody think that if you open up a bank account, the government should guarantee it? I mean, the government doesn't guarantee anything else. I mean, if you go and you buy a product, the government doesn't warranty it, right? I mean, the company will have its own warranty. But when you go out and you buy a car, it doesn't come with a government guarantee that it's, that it's not going to break down. Like when you buy a new cell phone or a television set, there's no government guarantee there. You just take your chances, right? Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. So, you know, you do your homework. You buy from a reputable company. What's so special about banking? Why is it that I have some kind of right that if I put my money in a bank, the taxpayer is on the hook in case something goes wrong? The whole concept doesn't make any sense. It defies logic. It's got nothing to do with capitalism completely unconstitutional, yet nobody questions this. Oh, bank accounts have to be insured. Why? You know, I've talked about New Zealand a few times uh, on the podcast, but, you know, one of the things that New Zealand did when they went through their uh, transformation in the 1980s because socialism bankrupted the country, one of the things they did is they eliminated their deposit insurance. They had it, and they realized it was a bad thing, and they got rid of it. So, you know, we didn't always have insured deposits, and we can get rid of it. And we would have a stronger, far more resilient, far more stable banking system 
if we didn't have these guarantees. Again, imagine if every product we bought came with a government guarantee. Well, obviously, we wouldn't have nearly as good products because the companies wouldn't be under so much pressure to have high quality because they know, hey, the government's going to replace anything that breaks. So they're, they're not going to be uh, manufactured to the same degree as if there is no government guarantee. And, and the companies are responsible for fixing the stuff that breaks. Because if everything has got a government guarantee, then you don't even have to bother to shop around. Who cares, right? Well, you know, life has risks. There's no guarantee from anything. So you want to put your money in a bank, well, then you better make sure that that bank is solid. Don't just put your money in any old bank. Do some homework. Do your research. But there's no reason to do any homework. There's no reason to do any research because of the government. And of course, the banks know this. And so they act recklessly and irresponsibly. So uh, Powell is on a fool's mission if he thinks more government is going to make the banking system more resilient and sounder. No, it will achieve the opposite, which is what it's already done, which is why the banking system is so unsound and non-resilient, because it survives only based on a government crutch. A sound, resilient banking system wouldn't need the government crutch. It could stand on its own legs. Now, um, he also mentioned that the Fed was going to remain focused on the dual mandate to promote employment and price stability. He talked about how important price stability is and then said that he wants to make sure that we get inflation back down to 2%. Again, I've pointed this out. If prices go up 2% a year, they ain't stable. Stable prices stay the same. That's the definition of stability. Not going up every year, that's not stable. So the Fed says one thing, but does another because it doesn't really want stable prices. It wants prices to go up because it wants to create inflation. It just thinks that if they only have 2% per year inflation, that it's not that bad. Well, it adds up. And of course, their 2% is really 4 or 5%. And that's a lot of inflation. Now, he admitted in the prepared remarks that the economy had slowed considerably last year. So he admitted that. He talked about a slowdown in the housing market is in fixed income. He attributed that to the high, higher interest rates. But he did keep focusing on the fact that the labor market is still super strong. The unemployment rate near 50-year lows, of course, we're not measuring it now the way we did 50 years ago, but of course, you know, he doesn't bring that up. He's talking about how we have this really strong labor market. And, and so, you know, price, high, rate, rate hikes can continue because the Fed is not worried about the employment part of its mandate. It's only worried about the price stability. And he admitted that inflation is still much too high. He admitted that in the prepared remarks, and he reiterated that in the Q&A. <clears throat> Let me see what else. Um, he did also say in the prepared remarks that reducing inflation will require, according to him, below trend growth and some softening in the labor market, right? So not a big deal, just a little bit of softening. Anyway, Oh, and he said that there's still a long way to go uh, in bringing inflation down to 2%, but that long-term inflation expectations remain well anchored. And for a lot of people, they are, if you look at the bond market, but the bond market's got it wrong. I mean, they, have, they still believe that the Fed is going to bring down inflation, although they don't think the Fed is going to bring down inflation. They think the Fed is going to bring down the economy, and they think that the economy crashing will bring down inflation. See, they're half right. The rate hikes will crush the economy and crush the banks and cause a huge recession, but that huge recession won't lead to lower inflation the way bond investors think. No, it's going to be the catalyst to spark even higher inflation. That's what nobody thinks. And that's you know where there's a real opportunity here to make a ton of money because the consensus is completely wrong on inflation and how it's going to play out in the bond markets, in the foreign exchange markets, in the precious metals markets. And so there's the opportunity for the people who do get it right uh, to make a lot of money at the expense of the people who have it completely wrong. But anyway, let me go to the Q&As because that's really where you get the important uh, nuggets. And I think it was the Q&As 
that caused the, the sell-off in the stock market, and they're likely to cause some additional decline. So one of the questions, the very first question he got was, should we read today's tweaking of the language and this hike as a pause, right? Is the Fed now pausing after this hike? And Powell basically said, no, we're, this is not a pause. Don't confuse it with a pause we have not decided yet. We don't know what we're going to do at our next meeting. We may hike rates or we may not. It just depends on the data, right? They're back to data dependent. So that immediately threw some cold water on the idea that the Fed would admit, yeah, we're going to take a step back and we're going to assess. So we've kind of paused. They're like, no, no, no. I mean, the next meeting is live. We could hike. We, we just haven't made up our mind yet. We need to see, you know, the data. We get the jobs data on Friday. The ADP that came out today, uh, you know, which I'm not even discussing, but that was better than estimates. But I want to focus mainly on, you know, uh, exclusively rather on, on this stuff. But, you know, that we get a jobs report on Friday. I'll talk about that probably on Sunday night when I do the next uh, podcast. But the Fed's going to be data dependent, right? He was asked if he still forecast a mild recession. And initially, he didn't really answer the question, but then he got it again later. And he said that he still believed that a slowdown was more likely than what he believed would hoped what he hoped would be a mild recession. Now, that's different than what he said in January to the fake Zelensky on that prank call that I talked about on my last podcast, he told Zelensky in January that a recession was equally likely to a slowdown. Now he's saying it's less likely to Congress. Why? The situation is decisively worse now than it was in January before the financial crisis started, before all these banks started you know, failing uh, one after another. How can Powell now think the odds of a recession are slower or slimmer than they were in January. I mean, if they were equal in January, it's obviously a greater probability now. But again, he was willing to be more honest with the fake Zelensky than he was with these reporters when he knows that all of America is listening to what he says. So he he still wants to you know play his cards close to the vest, although he didn't say that if we had a recession, it would be mild. He said he hoped it would be mild. So he didn't say, I think it will be mild. He said, I hope. Well, hoping and thinking are two very different things. You know, there's a lot of things that people hope for, right? They don't necessarily get them. So hoping for a mild recession is very different than forecasting a mild recession. So they've moved from forecasting it to just hoping a prayer. Well, the prayers are not going to be answered. Now, he did get questions on the debt ceiling. And once again, Powell punts by saying that these are fiscal problems, right? The debt ceiling is fiscal, and that's not, you know, in a way, right? We, you know, we don't want to step on anyone's toes, so we're not going to comment on it. We're not going to give any advice, which is a bunch of BS. <laughs> if he wants to fight inflation, he's got to acknowledge one of these elephants in this circus tent that we're in. And that is that what is driving inflation is fiscal policy. Maybe you could say that it's the monetary policy that's enabling the fiscal policy or the fiscal policy that is causing the monetary policy. You know, is it the chicken or the egg? But clearly, if Congress wasn't running these huge deficits, then the Fed wouldn't be in a position where it was monetizing them. And there is no way that we're going to get a handle on inflation unless government spending comes way down. So if you are fighting inflation, you've got to say to Congress, little help, you got to cut spending. you got to get rid of these deficits. You're making my job impossible. Instead, Powell wants to pretend that fiscal policy is irrelevant that he's just going to go on fighting inflation and he's not going to give any advice or say anything to Congress. It's like he's trying to you know, put out the fire and they keep throwing on more kindling. You know, you think you say, hey, cut it out. I'm trying to put this fire out. You know, you, you just keep feeding it. Right? He has to say something 
uh, but he refuses to. And so you know the problem's just going to get bigger and bigger if Powell refuses uh, to, you know, encourage even the government to do something. You know, he had no problem during COVID encouraging the government to run bigger deficits, which was a mistake, and he never should have done that. But now, why can't he encourage to do the opposite? Hey, cut the deficits because, you know, there's no way we're going to get rid of inflation unless you do that, because inflation is, in fact, the tax that we use to pay for all these deficits. So if you're going to pretend that the country's getting something for free, they're not. That's why prices are going up. But he did say, and he did give advice, he said, we got to raise the debt ceiling. That's one thing. He, didn't, he doesn't want to say anything about the debt. He won't give Congress advice on the debt, but he will give them advice on the ceiling, raise it, right? The ceiling's not the problem. The debt's the problem. He doesn't want to talk about the problem. He wants to talk about removing the only solution, which is the ceiling on that debt. And Powell said that, you know, we got to pay our bills. Well, again, if we paid our bills, we wouldn't have any debt. We would have paid our bills, right? We wouldn't owe any money. We have debt because we didn't pay our bills. And then, you know, I made me laugh as I'm watching because Powell said that we shouldn't even be talking about a world where the U.S. government doesn't pay its bills. We're not just talking in it. We've been living in it for decades. We have a $32 trillion stack of unpaid bills. That's what the national debt is. It's all the bills that we did not pay. If we paid all our bills, we'd have no debt, right? So why doesn't anybody other than me point this out? Somebody asked him about whether he was concerned that these big banks are getting bigger. As I mentioned, J.P. Morgan, uh, Chase buying First Republic, right? Enormous bank, now a little bit more enormous. And he kind of said, well, you know, maybe, but you know what? There's nothing we can do about it because that's the process. So we got to sell the banks to the highest bidders. Well, who are the highest bidders? The big banks. They've got the deepest pockets. They can always bid the most. Uh, so how are these small banks going to outbid? And of course, he said it would be nice to see a regional bank buy one of these regional banks. Why? That bank's going to fail too. Almost all these banks are going to fail. You know, the regional banks are going to fail, the smaller community banks. I mean, it's one after another. As I said, the more banks fail, the more, more banks are going to fail because the failures create the domino effect or there are the more dominoes. Those banks go. Well, there are more banks that are going to go after that. In, fa in fact, it's like it breeds on itself. It, it gets bigger and bigger as more banks go. And then every all the other depositors are like, oh, my God, my bank could be next. I'm going to yank out my money. And, you know, and people are going to yank out their money anyway because these banks can't pay enough interest. Now that the Fed has hiked rates again, short-term money markets are even more attractive relative to bank deposits than they were before. So this puts even more pressure on the banks because more of their customers are going to want their money out so that they can earn a better rate of return. And of course, if the banks want to keep the customers, they have to pay them more, which drains their earnings and puts them in a even weaker financial position. Uh, let's see. Yeah, now, so somebody said that, hey, these banks are failing isn't um, isn't credit contracting as a result of these bank failures. And so does that mean that maybe you don't have to raise rates as much? And he basically said, yeah, to that. He said that it's possible because of the situation that we may not have to raise rates as much as we might otherwise would have if none of this happened, right? So he didn't say we're going to stop raising rates, but he did say that they may not have to go as high because of the you know, unspoken uh, financial crisis that is now taking place. Now, the reality is they're actually going to go even higher because even more inflation is going to be created by the Fed in order to bail out uh, the country and the banking system and everybody. And so we're ultimately going to have more inflation, which is going to mean even higher rate hikes. But those rate hikes are coming later uh, rather than, than, than sooner. Um, let me see. So he did point out, though, in, in talking about wages, that he didn't think that wages were the principal driver of inflation, which is almost correct. 
it's not that they're not the principal driver. They're not any driver. The in wages going up don't cause inflation. Inflation causes wages, wages to go up. That's the, that's the order. Wages are the caboose. Inflation is the engine. Right? So it's inflation that drags wages up. Wages don't push inflation because inflation is coming from the expansion of the money supply, the devaluation of money, prices rise, including wages. And of course, the way it generally works is the price of goods and services goes up first and then wages go up later. And so there's a lag, but the workers are always you know, trying to catch up to prices that are rising faster than the price they get when they sell their labor for wages. Let me see. So somebody asked Powell, and this was, I think, a key question that also weighed heavily on the markets. The reporter asked Powell, are you going to rule out rate cuts like later this year? Because the market is anticipating rate cuts. It's already baked into the yield curve that the Fed's going to start cutting rates, you know, well before the end of the year. And why does the market think the Fed's going to cut rates? Well, because we're going to be in a recession. Uh, and eventually, you know, the labor market's going to break in a bigger way than it already has broken, but nobody really wants to acknowledge it. So the markets are looking at this recession and thinking the Fed's going to cut rates. Now, they're right about the recession. We're going to have a recession and it's not going to be mild. And the way the Fed has reacted in the past to recessions, mild or not, is it cuts rates. So the markets expect the Fed to do the same thing. Well, Powell came out and threw cold water again on that expectation by saying, no, the Fed has no plans to cut rates. Even if they stop hiking, they're not cutting. Rates are going to stay where they are. He said it would be very inappropriate of the Fed to cut rates, even if the labor market softened because it's coming from such a strong level, unemployment is so low, that the overriding factor is how high inflation is. And he admitted again that inflation is not going to come down quickly and that anybody who thinks it's going to come down quickly is wrong. He thinks inflation will come down, but it's going to be slow and it's going to take a long time to get there. And therefore, the Fed cannot give up on its policy and that rates have to stay high. Now, that, I thought, was one of the most bearish comments for the markets, because to the extent that the markets start to believe the Fed is more resolute and it's going to keep rates high, you know, come hell or high water, the markets have a long way to go down. What's interesting is that that didn't send gold down. That sent stocks down, didn't send gold down. Gold went up. Gold stocks, you know, they didn't soar, but but they had a positive day. And that is in contrast to the way the markets had been responding to those that type of talk, that type of hawkish, you know, tough talk on inflation fighting didn't go over well in the gold market. It scared the gold market. It ain't scaring it anymore, either because the market sees through the bluff or they see through what happens as a result of this, which is talking tough about inflation, which hurts the markets, the banks, and the economy, guarantees more inflation. Because ultimately, it doesn't matter what the Fed's saying now or you know how tough they want to pretend to be. When it gets right down to it, when everything is imploding the way it was in 2008, the way it was in 2020, we know what the Fed's going to do. It's not going to matter how high inflation is. And in fact, somebody's asked Powell if he would accept 3%. Like, what if you get inflation down to 3% and, you know, things are softening a bit in the labor market? Will you be content to kind of back off at three and just hope that the market does the rest for you and that we eventually go down to two, right? And in a roundabout way, he basically said, no. He said, we're not settling for three. Two's the number, right? We still want inflation to be 2%. So no, we're not settling for 3%. You know, if we get to 3%, we're going to keep on fighting. If we have to hike rates to get from three to two, we're going to hike rates, even if the economy is softer, even if we're in a mild recession. Now, again, you know, 
We may be in a protracted, anything but mild recession. We may be in a depression, right? Unemployment can go way up and inflation can still be way above 3%. And again, what about getting the average, right? What I mentioned this on my last podcast, you know, if Powell is admitting that it's going to take a long time for inflation to get back down to 2%, how many years is that, by the way? And then how many years of sub 2%, how many years of 1% inflation or a half a percent inflation will we need to get that average down to 2%? Of course, that's never going to happen, right? They, they already tossed that policy in the trash can without ever bringing it up again. They're just hoping everybody forgets about that, right? That, you know, I didn't forget about it. I'm reminding them. But they're hoping the world forgets that they ever introduced the concept of inflation averaging because they're never going to try to do that. I mean, they're not going to try to average 2% inflation. You know, they know that's never going to happen at this point. The average is going to be way above 2%. They're just trying to say that at some distant point in the future, after prices have gone way up, they're hoping that they eventually slow down and only go up at 2% a year. But I don't think we're going to see 2%. You know, um, um, Janet Yellen said we're not going to see another financial crisis for a lifetime. It's more likely that we don't see 2% inflation again in her lifetime. You know? So that's more likely than, well, the other one has already not happened. So forget about that, just starting from scratch. But I doubt in the lifetime of Janet Yellen, Will we see a full year where inflation is just 2%, even the way the government measures it now? Now, maybe if they dramatically change the CPI, maybe maybe they can make it happen with that kind of sleight of hand. But, but with the, the CPI we got now, as bad as it is, because that probably means that if inflation is 2%, according to the CPI we got now, that means it's 4%, according to the CPI we had in the 70s and 80s. I don't even think we can get there. I don't even think we can get down to 4% because that's how big this problem is. That's how much inflation is already in the pipeline. And there's no way Congress is going to cut spending, even the spending cuts that the Republicans propose as part of their debt increase that are dead on arrival are too little to make a difference. So even the Republicans right, who supposedly want to cut spending aren't willing to cut it enough to actually make a difference. And they're not willing to cut anything that will make a difference. The Republicans aren't cutting Social Security. They won't cut Medicare. They won't cut uh, national defense. They can't cut interest on the debt. Nobody wants to talk about cutting the entitlements. And so the minute you take entitlements and national defense you know, off the table, it doesn't matter what you do with the rest of it. The cuts can't possibly be deep enough to, to change the dynamics. And of course, as the debt is exploding, the debt is growing much faster than the economy. So the problem gets bigger with each passing day. And so we can't solve it now. It becomes even more difficult to solve tomorrow because every day that goes by where we don't do something, we make the problem that no one has the guts to solve bigger. And the bigger the problem gets, the scarier the solution is and so the less likely we're going to adopt one. And so I know that the end game here is going to be collapse. It's going to be runaway inflation. Now, here's another question that I thought was pretty silly. Powell was asked, you know, what have you learned from your experience, right? These banks failing. What, you know, what did, did you learn a lesson here, right? And what Powell said is, yeah, I learned something. I learned that banks could fail a lot faster than I thought. That's it. That's what he learned from all of this. And, and then he even said, yep, that's it. That's the only lesson I got. I had no idea that a bank could fail this quickly. <laughs> it's, that, so that's, that's the lesson he learned, that banks could fail fast. And he said before that I didn't think anybody knew that a bank could fail this fast. Well, of course. I mean, <laughs> you know, what does he think? I mean. This is the age of the internet and the computers. I mean, once you know the news is out that a bank is in trouble, travels pretty quickly. I mean, I don't know what Powell expected. I don't know why he's so surprised at the rapidity with which these banks are failing. But what's more surprising is that that's the only thing he learned. That's all he learned from this experience. He learned nothing. Nobody in government ever learns anything from their own mistakes because Powell made the mistakes. 
his monetary policy and the monetary policy of his predecessors at the Fed, of Janet Yellen, of Ben Bernanke, of Alan Greenspan, it's that monetary policy that caused the crisis that we have right now. You would think the Fed would have learned. No, doesn't learn anything. You're never going to stop repeating your mistakes if you don't learn from them. I mean, the only good thing about making a mistake is that you can learn from it so you don't make it again. But the government never does that. The government never learns from its mistakes. It just makes them again only bigger. And that's what's happening. And Congress, again, didn't learn from their mistakes. Ja I was looking at uh, Elizabeth Warren was on CNBC giving everybody advice on what we need to do to make the banks more, 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 more solid and more secure. She's part of the problem. She's been in Congress. You know, they have they wrote the laws, they passed the regulations and the subsidies that created this mess that produced a overleveraged banking system that was destined to collapse. This is the government's fault. This is the Fed's fault. Yet nobody at the Fed, nobody in Congress, nobody in the Biden administration is learning anything from their mistakes. All they do is blame capitalism for their mistakes. Blame a lack of regulation. No matter how much regulation they put on after every crisis, the next crisis is always because there wasn't enough regulation or because maybe one little regulation got rolled back. Oh, deregulation. Like you, we added on 10 regulations and you took one away and that's the problem. That was the reason everything collapsed. Not the nine regulations that were still there. No, the one that you took away, that's what did it. So now we need 20 more on top of that to fix the problem. So the answer to, you know, the real answer to Powell's question was, what did you learn? Absolutely nothing, right? Because I never learned anything and neither does anybody else at the Fed. Now, he also was asked if he regretted anything that he did. He should have a long list of regrets. <laughs> and at least Powell was honest enough to admit, only, he almost laughed, like it's like it's funny, right? He kind of said, yeah, you know, I, I regret a few things, right? You know, kind of like with a little bit of a chuckle, like, you know, the joke's on the country. You know, we've got to live with the consequences of the things that he regrets. But he didn't come out and say exactly what those things were, right? He left it a mystery that, yeah, the Fed does regret something, but I'm not really going to tell you what it is that I, that I regret, right? So it's up to your imagination. So who knows if he's even smart enough to realize what he should regret uh, and what he shouldn't regret. But the markets are going to regret it a lot more. And investors are going to regret it if they don't take action. You know, I'm actually pretty surprised that this late in the game, you still have time. You can still buy gold for only $2,050 an ounce. You know, you can buy silver. It's still pretty close to uh, $20 an ounce, right? It's not far above it. Uh, silver's cheap. It's way below the $50 high that it had in 2011. And that was the same high it had in uh, 1980. So silver is still cheaper by 50% from the peak in 1980. There's not that many things that you could buy that are half off from their 1980 price. Uh, so silver is a buy. The dollar index is still above 100. In fact, it's still above 101. So the dollar hasn't crashed yet. You still have a good uh, exchange rate to get out of your dollars and buy some stronger foreign currency. So you still have the opportunity. You have a gift, you know, from the markets. The dollar should already be a lot lower. Gold already should be a lot higher. You shouldn't have this opportunity. You should have already blown it because you didn't act sooner. Well, you've got a second chance. You've got a reprieve. You've got to get out of jail free card. Use it while you can. Again, I don't have any idea how many more days, weeks, months we've got before everything implodes before the dollar crashes and gold explodes. But you know what? Don't take a chance. Just like people are taking their money out of the bank before they fail, why take a chance? Why leave your money in the dollar? Why take that chance? Why keep your money in any fiat currency when you have gold or silver? Why take the chance of runaway inflation? And why not put your money into solid foreign stocks that pay good dividends? 
own real things that will maintain their value, that when the government destroys the value of the currency, this stuff is still there. These businesses, these companies, the plant and equipment, the technology, the IP, the goodwill, the infrastructure, supply chains, all this stuff is still there because humans aren't going to stop needing things. They're not going to stop wanting things and they're going to have to buy them. And you may as well own the means of producing and distributing the things that people need to buy because those things will always have value. The paper that governments print never had any value. It's all psychology. It's all confidence. If you believe it has value, well, then people will accept it. But confidence could be lost a lot quicker than it's gained. Just like people are losing confidence in the banks very quickly, soon they're going to lose confidence in the currencies that they have on deposit in those banks. And again, then it don't, won't matter which bank your money is at. In fact, it won't even matter where your money is. You can take it out of a bank and stuff it under your mattress, and it's still at risk because inflation destroys dollars no matter where they are. And the only way to escape that is to get rid of the dollar. And that is what I am encouraging everybody to do. Uh, call up Shift Gold, call up the brokers at Europe Pacific Asset Management, and you know, take action. If you're not currently a client, become a client, and, and we'll help you uh, rapidly uh, you know, reallocate your, your portfolio. If you already are a client, you already have an account, it's much easier. Just add to it. Take money out of uh, your banks, take it out of the U.S. stock market, out of the U.S. bond market, U.S. bond market, and put it, I think, out of harm's way uh, by investing in these overseas strategies that we are utilizing at Euro Pacific uh, Asset Management. Anyway, that's it for tonight. Again, all of you premium members, stay tuned or um, you know log in to Shift Radio slash Premium. I will be doing taking your questions and answering them. Uh, coming right up. So bye for now.